Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of GUCast. This is Declan Murphy, urologist here at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, joined as ever by my co-host, Dr. Renu Epen, urologist here at Peter Mac in Melbourne. Morning, Renu. Hello, Declan. It's our first podcast of spring. Oh, it is. It's, it's still spring. freezing, though. I know. Spring in Australia. Someone tell the weather. Sorry to rub it into <laughs> the Northern Hemisphere, but we're, this is just coming into the sweet spot for us, isn't it? Yeah, yes. it really is. Nice time of the year. Great. And we got a couple of studio guests, a couple of friends of the podcast are back to see us again. Uh, we'd like to welcome back Professor Nathan Lorenzschuk, uh, urologist here at Peter Mac and head of urology at the Royal Melbourne. Nathan, welcome back. It's been a few months, actually. It has. Fantastic to be back here and... Uh, Talking about a topic today close to my heart. Bladder cancer, it is indeed. And before we get to Nathan and our international guests, uh, Dr. Aoife McVeigh, uh, our registrar here with her uh, occasional segment on what's happening out in social media. Oh, you've got a new name for your segment. Have you finally decided on a name uh, for it, Aoife? Yeah, I just thought I'd build some, obviously some anticipation for the name. Uh, But we're thinking um, Twitty Leaks. (laughs) (laughs) Twitty Leaks with Eva McVeigh. Is that a play on WikiLeaks? Twitty Leaks, do we like that? If you like that, please let us know. I like that. Do you vote? At least leak is a urological word. (laughs) Yeah. I actually didn't think that. I think Twitty could get twisted around. Lovely. So it's perfect then. We have a portmanteau, we have a little bit of subtle blah, blah. So Twitty Leaks, we need to make a jingle for you then. You deserve your own jingle with Twitty Leaks. (laughs) So what have you got for us on Twitty Leaks this week? Um, so what I'd seen on Twitter this week actually came from the Burst um, Urology Research Collaborative. Um, I wasn't tipped off by Viru at all to, <laughs> to talk about this on the <laughs> podcast. I have to claim this yeah, that yeah. first of all. Um, but they actually they had done that paper recently in BGUI on the um, stones. And from that, they've made a risk calculator. Called, it's called Mimic. And they have another one called Identify. And on their website, it's just a calculator that you can put all of your patient information into and then you get like a percentage um, chance of passing the stone and, and that sort of thing and also a hematuria risk um, calculator as well so that was pretty good and um, it's nice if you see a patient in ED and you can say to them you've got a 22% chance of you know that sort of thing helps with that um, consultation so yeah I advise people to check it out. They're very good yeah. bursts, aren't they? Mm. We, we've had them on. We did a piece about, about burst and about Yao, about these young collaborative trainees who are working together in their own countries and internationally, EAU, Australians, Burst Group, and um, they've done some nice work, Nathan, haven't they? Yeah, they did. We um, On the back of Burst, we obviously started Euro, the Young mm. Urologist Research Organisation, and in fact, Todd Manning, um, who was involved, in the first iteration of that was actually on that mimic paper because mm. we uh, gathered the young Australians to be involved in that as well. So um, when that paper was published, I think it's one of the large... What it shows is the power of group thought, if you like, that you mm. can get hundreds of, of trainees to actually get data and then suddenly you've got thousands of patients of data, which mm. is where this comes from. Yeah. Fantastic. Well done, Burst. Excellent. Yeah. Anything else that you saw? Um I'd also seen that uh, your old fellow Marcus has got a new podcast. Um, <laughs> it's called oh, yeah. Top Bunk, Bottom Bunk. Um, <laughs> TBBB. And, yeah, and I started to listen to it. The first episode's um, actually a nice episode for women in urology. So it um, interviews, I think it's uh, Dr. Joe Creswell, the female president of Boyce, and also um, Dr. Nadine um, Cole, who... I think um, she's in charge of the urology section at the Royal Society of Medicine now. So, yeah. 
And then I think Stacey Loeb for the second episode. So yeah. two episodes and some great guests. So they're, they're off to a great start. Yeah. Top, top bunk, bottom bunk. Yes. T triple B, I heard Marcus introducing yeah. it as. Uh, <laughs> so that's a useful podcast, T triple yeah. B. So Marcus being yeah. a, a young consultant and Sammy being his uh, uh, research fellow. So I think they're trying to give that sort of perspective and they've got a very professional setup. I, I must say I was, it was very impressed from a technical point of view. Uh, they've got a good team behind them, Senac, one of their uh, trainees. So uh, we'll link out to them and maybe we'll get them on in a few weeks. Yeah. Uh, to make it to give them a plug couldn't yeah. help it T is that transperineal prostate <laughs> <laughs> we're talking yeah. bladder cancer oh, sorry. No, people complain we talk too much about uh, prostate cancer yeah, any other change. any other twitty leaks um I don't think so. Uh, just to continue the usual Kardashian update, um, Kim Kardashian, I think, has joined uh, partners with a private equity fund. So that's her next venture, and we wish her all the best with it. Excellent. She needs more money. <laughs> more money. Nathan, there was, was that news to you? Do you follow yeah. the Kardashians very closely? Uh, thank, thanks for updating me. I'd, I'd miss that one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, She'll have the most important one for <laughs> Thank last. you so much. Pretty leaks. Thanks, guys. <laughs> thank Good you. Episode. Good to see you. Thank you. Um, so, Renu, we better introduce uh, our international guests joining Absolutely. us for this bladder cancer special. We haven't talked bladder cancer for a few months, and it's a very popular topic every time we talk about it. And so we thought we would reach out to some of our friends, uh, friends and influencers overseas. So it's a great pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Niha Vapiwala. Uh, a radiation oncologist at the University of Pennsylvania, and also Dr. Ashish Kamat, an old friend of the podcast as well, uh, from MD Anderson Cancer Center, a urologist specializing in bladder cancer. Uh, Niha uh, and Ashish, welcome. Welcome, guys. Great Thank to be you here so again. Much. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah, great to have you back. And Niha made an appearance briefly previously when we were at the APCCC in Lugano, and yeah. she came to chat with us, and she's a great opinion leader in GU Oncology. She's great fun to follow on Twitter. We'll link out to her, of course. Uh, and obviously, um, this topic today, bladder cancer, bladder preservation, is something that we need an expert in GU radiation oncology to talk about, and we need a urologist specializing in bladder cancer. we got two of them. we got Nathan and we got Ashish. And we wanted to talk, first of all, about uh, the BC 2001 trial, uh, Renu, isn't that right? Yeah, uh, fantastic uh, long-term results now, um, 10-year outcomes. So um, it's, a, it's a great trial that's just been published in uh, European Urology and uh, great editorial to, to follow that up. And um, it'll, be, it'll be wonderful to hear these guys talk about it. Yeah, and we've seen both of you um, uh, tweet about this. And of course, this is a, it was a landmark trial when it was originally published in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, a randomized uh, trial uh, exploring the use of chemoradiotherapy for bladder cancer, kind of, I suppose, defined where we are with that now. So mm-hmm. Ashish, you know, uh, I've seen you tweet about this. Um, and uh, can you just give us your overarching comments on this update to BC 2001 published in European Urology? I should say Ashish is also an associate editor at European Urology Oncology. Yeah, no, so Declan, first of all, again, thanks for having me on the show and, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about this very important topic. Um, when it comes to bladder preservation, you know, the pendulum kind of swings each way. It goes one way where people are completely against bladder preservation, then they go completely for bladder preservation. And we need trials such as these to kind of inform our decision making. Um, what's nice about this report is that it's long-term data of a trial that, as you likely uh, rightly mentioned, was a landmark study and essentially 
is cements the data, right? So it's 10-year follow-up. It cements that chemo radiation should be standard of care, is standard of care at this point. Um, and again, you know, you can look at the nuances. I'm sure you guys you will ask us about the nuances between, you know, the short-term data, the two to five-year data, and the five-plus-year data. But essentially, I think this is good to see. It should allay the fears of some of the people that thought that the follow-up of the original report was too short, which it was, even though they reported in multiple um, presentations at different meetings. But seeing this in print always is useful. That's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, when it comes to muscle-invasive bladder cancer, bladder preservation is often seen as a bit of a dirty term. Um, and uh, I think we need data like this to really cement the fact that we can offer still a curative option uh, for patients with bladder preservation. Yeah, I think so. And uh, Niha, your comments on this uh, update? And uh, of course, the trial was not comparing with surgery. We can talk about that in a few moments, the role of radical cystectomy. But this was a very nice trial comparing the optimization of bladder preservation, radiotherapy alone versus radiotherapy with chemo. But yeah, your your thoughts, your take-home messages. Sure. Well, and again, thank you, friends, for inviting me. Um, I think if I had one little complaint, it would be that you didn't send me uh, a suit of armor to protect me as you invite <laughs> me to a room room full of brilliant urologic surgeons. Um, but that's okay. We're all friends here, right? So Absolutely. Um, and it does uh, rather, I think, um, stand to, to be an important point that we did not have a comparison to cystectomy. That's right. The, the focus of this trial, exactly as Ashish said, is cementing what we have already established in practice, which is that the combination of chemotherapy and radiation, uh, you know, clearly is the preferred way. And, and in this case, you know, although local regional disease was the primary endpoint, there were several other parameters in which um, there clearly was the benefit to the combination. And I would just say as a radiation oncologist, and I, I hope I don't put any urologists to sleep with this, but um, you know, mitomycin, 5-FU, and radiation, we've long used this combination. We've used this for head and neck cancers, for the treatment of esophageal, for anal and cervical, um, and so primarily in the world of squamous cell carcinomas and a lot of in vitro data showing the not only the additive effect of 5-FU and mitomycin to radiation, but uh, a super additive effect. And the idea that this radiosensitization and perhaps also the cytotoxic cell kill that happens, that one can take advantage of that in a multitude of cancers. So seeing this potential, uh, you know, the potential of this combination be, um, you know, shown to fruition with long-term data in the muscle invasive bladder cancer setting is, is very fulfilling. It's important. As you said, the, the landmark study was the, was the five-year study, but we all wanted to see these, these long-term data. And so it's, uh, it's again, reaffirming what we know. And the one other point I would add is these are, these are true patients that we can relate to that we see in clinic. Not all of them uh, had resection. Not all of them had complete tumor resection. Not all of them um, are a, a young fit age. And so I think that's also particularly useful uh, to those of us in practice who are looking for data that can be applicable to our patients. Yeah, that's a great point. And Nathan, you know, often we, we see these patients with bladder cancer who are you know, advanced age, lots of comorbidities, and often, you know, they're not, they're not candidates for things like platinum chemotherapy. Mm. So this combination of mitomycin and 5-FU is really useful, isn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, yeah, I mean, that was a really good point just made. I mean, of course, we know that um, chemo radiation is standard of the care for those who can't have a radical cystectomy. Mm. Uh, we would confirm that from this trial. Uh, but you're right. I mean, if you look at the patient cohort, it was older. It was patients who weren't fit in general for cystectomy. I think the really interesting group to target are those where perhaps they're a little bit younger, where maybe 
does this bring into play clinical equipoise where you can genuinely say, well, you know what? Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe radiation chemo is good. You'll keep your bladder. Uh, maybe cystectomy is good. So I think we know that there's this clear group of patients who've got obstructed ureters, significant lower urinary tract symptoms, etc. They're not going to be suitable for this. But for me, it's about the actual the middle group, which is where we have the clinical dilemma where we'd like to do bladder preservation, but we're not sure. I think the devil's in the detail. When I was in my SUO fellowship in Toronto, we had a very sophisticated program there for uh, chemo radiation. And in fact, I think, and this, even going back to the original paper, I couldn't get a feel for this, was uh, the two points again brought up. We really wanted complete resection in these patients before they had chemo radiation as a preference. But also, the radiation oncologists used to come to our cystoscopy suite, and halfway through the chemo cycle, we would see who was progressing and who wasn't. And then we would stretch some of those patients to go on and have salvage cystectomy. So I think there's a little more to this than just yes or no. I think there's also the subtleties of, of selecting patients even mid-treatment cycles to say, well, actually, we will change course here if the chemo radiation's not working. So I, I think I'd be interested to hear what um, our other two guests have to say about that as well. So, you know, Nathan, Nathan you, you very succinctly put together the natural history of the evolution of chemoradiation for bladder cancer, right? Because when it first started out, um, the selection of patients was somewhat what was reported in the study, a solitary tumor, well-selected patients. I mean, again, there were real-world patients in this trial too, but selection criteria for bladder preservation with chemoradiation was very, very restricted. And it was done so mainly because, you know, people didn't believe. When, when we say people, urologists didn't believe in chemoradiation. So the folks that designed these studies and these trials um, selected patients with no CIS, solitary tumor, complete resection, you know, no obstructed ureters, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the um, majority of the data. That's in that patient population that chemoradiation has shown to be very, very effective. Over the course of years, of course, we and others have learned that you don't need to be as restrictive. You don't need to have just a solitary tumor. It doesn't have to be tiny. You can also treat some patients with CIS. You can also treat some patients with obstructed ureter so long as you resect the tumor. Um, and more importantly, you don't need to necessarily do a complete radical TUR. I mean, a deep bulking TUR is still very, very important, but you don't need to do that radical TUR that we used to do where you'd actually go almost down to fat and, and have no tumor left in the bladder because to be honest with you, if you can do that in a patient, many of them you can just observe, right? They don't need radiation mm. afterwards. You could just do a radical TUR. So I think you very well put it. I mean, the, the evolution of our recognition of which patients we can use chemoradiation in as a viable option for curative purposes and not just palliative has evolved over time. Um, but if you look at the strict definition of sort of which patients will fall into the chemotherapy uh, or chemoradiation realm, it still today represents 10, 15% of patients that we see in our clinic. So in the well-selected patient, absolutely chemoradiation, no question. It's that gray zone in between since we're talking about potential comparisons as to who would be better served with bladder preservation with chemoradiation, with radical TUR or partial cystectomy or with uh, cystectomy. I mean, that's the question that, that I don't think anybody has the right answer to yet. And um, maybe over to you, Neha, to talk about <laughs> the surgical aspect of cystectomy. You did yes. you did um, outline the five year cystectomy rate in the paper. Um, can you go over those figures with us? What was the rate for for those who had chemoradiation and for those who had just radiotherapy alone? 
Yeah, because it strikes me that, you know, you forget that, that five years later, it's, it is a successful strategy. The vast majority of people are keeping their bladders intact. And I think it was for, it was 14% cystectomy rate uh, for the uh, chemo radiotherapy versus 22% for just radiotherapy alone. So, I mean, we're all using chemo radiotherapy for these, but look, 85% of patients are keeping their bladders in the head. That, that seems pretty good, doesn't it? Well, exactly. And, um, you know, I think, again, exactly as you said, the 14 versus 22% salvage cystectomy rate. Um, the hazard ratio, you know, 0.61 when they adjusted for the other prognostic factors, 0.59. So we could just, you know, say, uh, you know, in terms of recurrence-free survival, that is uh, incredibly impressive. And, and again, you know, even though bladder cancer-specific survival was only borderline significant, I think the feeling that you have patients who actually do have functional bladders, and this is where, again, patient-reported outcomes as well as uh, physician-reported toxicity is incredibly important. And, and I think it's pretty remarkable, actually, when you look at the five-year report compared to the 10-year the report that was just published, um, you know, the rates are actually somehow favoring uh, chemoradiation, if you will, in terms of actually cumulative grade three, four toxicity. So, um, you know, I think, again, in a patient who does not have cystectomy as an option or for whatever reason has not um, chosen to pursue that, I think this is incredibly reassuring to those of us um, who want to be able to provide these patients, not just the, the cancer control that, of course, we're seeking, but leave these patients with something uh, to look forward to, some quality of life to be able to spend um, the, their years. And I think it is important that we talk about their remaining years because the overall survival in this population at 10 years is, is low, right? Overall, these are patients who are dying of other causes, and we have to think about how these um, treatments may have contributed to these other causes. I think attribution of, uh, of cause of death is one of the hardest things in the world, if not the hardest. I think we think we do a good job of it, but we, we do the best we can. Um, but I, I never take for granted that, um, you know, the, the long-term toxicity uh, of radiation and certainly chemo together um, must always be valued. And so in this case, having patients report uh, in this study that they are happy with their bladder function, I think is is a key take home as well. It's it's also important to note that I think half the patients who had local tumor recurrence didn't have a cystectomy. And that may be because they were too comorbid and so on. But, you know, there was a, still a significant number that was recognized that they did have uh, local recurrence rather than systemic from what, right. my reading. Uh, the other issue is, um, and this may come as a shock to you, um, most urologists think that the RTOG toxicity scale is a little bit soft you know in the clavian dindo you spell someone's name wrong and it comes up as a grade two complication <laughs> the rtog you've virtually got to have the patient you know uh, having a blood transfusion intubated in icu and is that grade two or three <laughs> toxicity <laughs> fair very fair very fair and and that is i always do take that with a grain of salt and, and that's where um i know they use the the lent soma as well but but you're right, it's it's all in the scale that one uses. And of course, it's all uh, in the eyes of the, of the holder as well. I think we've all had urology patients who come in for follow-up and they're, you know, having all sorts of issues. And when you ask them, how much does this bother you? They might say, oh, not at all. And then you have somebody else with the uh, minimalist of, of symptoms yeah. and, and it bothers them a lot, right? So there's so many yeah. layers to this, but you're absolutely right. The scales that we use, um, you know, are very important in our interpretation. But, which, sure. is, which is why the quality of life is the single most important yeah, thing because one patient's so. symptom uh, will cause no quality yeah. of life issues and the other one's devastating, you know, so yeah. And these patients who did yeah, end up... Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Oh, sorry, go ahead, Ashish. Uh, so I, I just going to make a point about the cystectomy free rates, right? Because I mean, that's something that people often will, will try to hang their hat on and, and peg the results with. But um, we actually had an FDA workshop uh, last year in November to talk about cystectomy free rates as an endpoint for bladder preservation. And if you looked at the panel, it's an open uh, FDA uh, workshop. You can, you can uh, view it if you need to. But uh, the bottom line was cystectomy free rates are so fraught with uh, biases, right? I mean, Declan, you might recommend cystectomy new patients. Patient A, Renu might see that patient and say, oh, you don't need a cystectomy. Let's just resect this and put some BCG in and, and salvage you. And then Nate might see someone and say, oh, you should have a cystectomy yesterday, right? Mm. So who does the patient listen to? What is that cystectomy free rate and how does it actually correlate? So it's good mm. that we see that. The other thing to keep in mind, and again, all of us here know this, but for some of the more younger trainees that might be listening in, when you look at the percentage of patients that undergo cystectomy on any trial, that's in the patients who are still alive and undergo cystectomy, right? So if you die of a disease with metastatic disease or failure of treatment, uh, and in this case, we're talking about radiation, for example, chemo radiation, if that didn't work and the patient died before he or she could get yeah. a cystectomy, they don't count towards that cystectomy rate. So it's always good to keep that cystectomy number 14, 12%. It seems impressive, but you got to really look behind the scenes and take that with a huge, you know, not a yeah. grain, but a, but a tablespoon of salt. Yeah, that's a great point. And of all the people that do end up undergoing cystectomy, what proportion of them underwent cystectomy for disease reasons rather than toxicity-related reasons? Now, maybe you could take that. I see you nodding. Yeah, so, oh, yeah. Well, I, the point I was going to say, actually, Renu, is uh, about the, the patients who didn't get the cystectomy. And when we look at the difference in the development of distant metastases in that group, um, and then I think this is where understanding who got neoadjuvant chemotherapy, who didn't, because remember this group actually about just about a third of patients did actually have planned neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And so I'm particularly intrigued by, um, you know, of course, what went on uh, in the, the natural course of, of disease for those patients who did have recurrence um, and then did not get cystectomy and, and the distant METS development, because we didn't seem to make as much of a dent in that as we would like. And I think that's where there's still clearly a lot of inroads to be made. And I, I'm always curious what my colleagues think about in terms of, you know, either chemotherapy intensification, uh, immunotherapy, or is this something that we wouldn't have had um, had they gotten cystectomy? So that just to be provocative, <laughs> is that would we, would we not have seen that distant met? Um, can we actually say that? I don't know that we can. Yeah, it's tricky. Yeah. I mean, if you read through the paper, it sort of writes off and says, well, those that failed early were metastatic and we were never going to get them. But, I mean, you can say that in follow-up, but in reality we wouldn't know because you'd have to have a randomised trial, which we don't have. But I was just going to follow up on my favourite words of radiation, so hypofractionation and dose escalation. Now, um, Professor Somik, Shomik Sengupta, who some of you might know, who's uh, we did a study a few years ago. We were trying to put together lapiodol with various glues and things. Could we actually target the tumours better for the radiation oncologist so you can actually dose escalate those areas? And I noticed that some of the patients here only had partial bladder treatment and so on. We did a trial and published it, but you know it wasn't that easy to get a marker. We thought about gold seeds, they, they migrate, so on. Do you think it would be better if we had a marker that you could uh, focus on where we could circle the tumour? Or do you think that the targeting using, say, MR, which has got a little better in the last few years and so on, does a good enough job for you from a radiation perspective? 
Yeah, great question. I, I think nowadays, um, because of the technology, just as you mentioned, we have MR, LINAC as uh, linear accelerator is one example. Um, I don't think the markers are as critical. There was a time um, not too long ago where the, the presence of those fiducial markers and knowing where the urologist had been and, and what they'd seen when they were doing the cystoscopy and, and um, the TRBT was so critical to, to leave those markers behind. But I think um, less so now, as long as we have sort of a, a map and a sense of, uh, you know, where the lesions were and with, with solid imaging, I think we're able to overcome that. What's interesting, though, is uh, whether we need to do this. You know, I think this was certainly designed more as a toxicity question, the second randomization in, uh, in the trial uh, in BC 2001 that had to do with um, whether doing the partial boost and, and reducing dose to the rest of the bladder made a difference in toxicity, but, uh, but it was designed as non-inferiority from a control standpoint. And I don't know that we got any um, clear answers there other than either is acceptable, but I don't know that we've given up or we should give up on continued focus particularly for lesions that are quite limited. Uh, any bladder sparing that's possible, I think, is still always worthwhile, regardless of, of the negative findings here. Well, I mean, Declan, great trial, isn't it? And, and great to have long-term outcomes. But Ashish, you know, this, this, obviously this trial doesn't compare between bladder preservation and cystectomy. And I think, you know, what a lot of urologists will want to know when faced with a patient who has muscle-invasive bladder cancer is how do you choose? Um, how do you handle that question and, and what, what will future trials look like? Well, so I think it's very important for anybody that treats patients with bladder cancer to offer them the option of radiation therapy or bladder preservation if it's appropriate, right? And that big if it's appropriate is where you'll see a lot of our colleagues say, oh, I don't have any patients that are appropriate. Uh, and hence, that's why I don't recommend it to anyone. And I think that's wrong um, because in the right patient, chemo radiation certainly has a role, right? And what I usually recommend in programs that are starting out is follow the classic Bill Shipley uh, teaching, you know, the, the single tumor that can be easily reached, where the bowel's not overlying the bladder, where you don't have hydronephrosis, no CIS, good bladder capacity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those are the patients that you should start out with. Obviously, we and others have experience where you can have multiple tumors in the bladder, so long as you can, and again, I tend to debulk most of these tumors. I know Nick James over in the UK feels that you don't need to debulk any bladder cancer. You can go straight to radiation therapy. He and I have had multiple debates in person and on Twitter, and he hasn't convinced me. I still think we need to debulk as much of the disease as we can to get chemo radiation to be effective. Um, and then there's a wider range of patients that actually can get chemo radiation. And, and Neha, you know, I'd be interested to see what you have to say about this, because I actually just put out a, a, a honest question on, on Twitter recently, because I was getting a lot of pushback from radiation oncologists saying, oh, you know, the tumor is too close to the sigmoid, we can't do radiation. It's too close to a small bowel, we can't do radiation. And I know our radiation colleagues in GI radiate the bowel all the time. So, you know, do you tend to turn down patients, for example, just because of the location of the tumor, or will you do dynamic modeling and dynamic, uh, you know, simulations for these patients? Good question. Yeah, no, I, yeah, thank you for the question. I, I would say that um, as with many things, and perhaps this applies to surgeons as well, uh, it all comes down to sort of the, the confidence of the experience. You know, I think there's what we all read in the books and the classic Shipley protocol um, that was described very well earlier with the, you know, mid-treatment uh, second look. So it's very conservative as it needed to be, right, historically to, to prove the worth uh, at that time, because we didn't know if it was at all feasible. 
now fast forward all these years, we have all these technologies, you're still going to find radiation oncologists that would shy away from anything that exceeds, you know, our small bowel doses, we usually try to keep um, even point doses, maximum doses below 54 gray in our units of radiation. And, you know, most bladder cancers we're trying to treat uh, in the 60s. And so there's often this concern. And if there's a willing urologist and, a, and an eager patient who's fine or has uh, you know, ambivalence either way and is willing to do what the, what the doctor says. I can see a tendency to say, oh, unless it's perfectly cherry-picked patient, I'm not going to radiate. But I think for most uh, high-volume centers where we have radiation oncologists that are accustomed to challenging cases, multidisciplinary tumor board discussions where the, the patient, the urologist, and the radiation oncologist have all decided we're really going to give bladder preservation, uh, a solid attempt. I think we have now the tools to work around pretty much almost all of these restrictions. I'm still not, I know I've seen it on Twitter that uh, hydro does not phase um, some of my colleagues uh, in, in various parts of the world, but uh, we, we do each have our own criteria. But uh, as far as the, the location and uh, some of those restrictions that you mentioned with the sigmoid, I think we have the tools now to work around it. And particularly if you have a patient with you know, um, minimal uh, tumor bulk and obviously, um, you know, minimal number of lesions, very limited CIS, and you can stay away from those areas of the sigmoid. I think we've just learned that you could make that area cooler uh, and not necessarily gain uh, or, or lose, excuse me, um, any success points and not um, worry about the toxicity as much. And uh, Nathan, over to you. You're our resident bladder cancer expert. How are you going to use this data um, and how are you going to choose between bladder preservation and cystectomy for the next patient you see? Good question. I'm not sure I'm the expert, but I certainly take an interest in it. Um, yeah, look, I think it's a case of um, – I'm with Ashish. So I think you've just got to consider each case. And, uh, you know, we do put forward – I agree. We we probably put forward more cases here for chemoradiation than, than, than ever – and we do get a little bit of pushback as well at times about um, bowel location and so on and so forth. I think the other issue for us here at Peter Mac, and maybe it's just the cohort we get, we often have patients who've previously had radiation to the pelvis for, for bowel cancer and other gyne malignancies. So, you know, again, another group who are not... I've got a lady at the moment who's had endometrial cancer many years ago and now probably got a secondary malignancy, unfortunately, from that original radiation. She's lived long enough and done well enough into her late 60s to get that. So I think that's an interesting aspect as well that we probably won't have time to touch on today. But getting back to your original point, I think it's probably just having the confidence that, uh, and this sort of data adds to it, that we can actually say to patients, look, there's good long-term data. Um, ignore what you read on Google. We know through our trials we've published that probably only about 15% of Google pages will give any sort of semblance of reality to uh, treatment. We know that across all urologic malignancies and that's been shown time and again. So I think it's really, uh, it's about setting the patient expectations. And, you know, I think the difficulty comes when we know a patient's not suitable for bladder preservation. They've read bladder pre preservation and want it. And then we have the other way around where patients go, I want my bladder out. And I'm like, well, actually, you know, you're 84. <laughs> you know, you probably might do okay with chemo radiation. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, um, you've got to reset those expectations from the patient just as well as we've got to set our own for who we can choose. So, um, you know, this data will empower us, I think, to have those discussions in a, in a better way. 
Fantastic. Well, I think Nathan's Nathan has to run, I think. Uh, he's Nathan, got better things to do than content creation on a Thursday morning. <laughs> exactly, but thank you very much. Good luck it. with the with the pinectomy, Nathan. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining Pleasure. us. Good to see you, Nathan. Pleasure to be here. Cheers. See you, guys. Fantastic. So Nathan's wow. heading off, but we still have you guys for a couple of moments. There were two other quick things we want to talk about because uh, recent ESMO, I know none of us were actually at uh, recent ESMO, but there were, um, uh, well, there were some advanced pro- uh, bladder cancer highlights, but we wanted to focus today more on local, local, regional. And there were a couple that caught our eye, Renu. Um, one was Nick James. And we actually, as we were having the previous discussion about debulking, etc., um, it's very relevant to talk about this uh, paper he presented um, called um, Bladder Path, the Bladder Path Study, which he's been talking about for years and years and years. Yeah. Um, quite justifiably, like many people, criticizing the way we manage um, primary bladder cancer, that TORBT is a bit of an arcane, uh, imprecise procedure, et cetera, et cetera. And he, has, he and others have had this idea that why don't you do an image-based approach and do an MR of the bladder rather than a TUR of the bladder and then uh, see which pathway might be better. So he presented um, the bladder path study, and I can see both of you have been tweeting about it, and and uh, we'll put links out in the show notes. But that's this great is great because it's what it's what made this podcast. All those tweets. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly right. Yeah, that's all we do. We just look at Twitter yeah. and think, what are we talking about this week? <laughs> um, but it's it is provocative, isn't it? Because um, uh, uh, well, maybe we'll have a quick chat about it. a randomized study where you take men newly suspected of bladder cancer based on a flexible cystoscopy, um, and it's about the pathway. You're, they're either on a pathway where you standard get go to the OR, have a TURBT, and then whatever definitive treatment, whether that's endoscopic for non-muscle invasive or um, radiotherapy or surgery for muscle invasive, the pathway to when you start that versus um, uh, the tra- versus an imaging-based uh, pathway. So you have your flexi, but then instead of a TURBT, you have an MR. Mm-hmm. And the MR is to characterize this lesion and uh, whether MR alone can correctly characterize muscle invasive is one of the questions that gets addressed and ultimately what treatment they go on and get. So Ashish, um, uh, you've been talking about uh, the value of debulking, etc. And I could see a lot of people on Twitter reacting, saying, hold on, you know, there's a lot of value in it the pathological variants, et cetera, et cetera, the CIS associated. Um, so what, what your thoughts on, on the bladder path study? And maybe we will get you and Nick back on because I know you've debated it before, but now that he's presented it, maybe we will invite both of you on and he's an old friend of the podcast as well. Yeah, you know, so first off, um, I, I, I know Nick and, and we're friends and, and I like him a lot and I have to give him, you know, due kudos for actually designing the study and getting it going and, and rolling and publishing on it as he's done with many other studies that he's done before. Um, but if you really look at the genesis of the study and the primary endpoint is the time to getting the patient to definitive treatment, which is a problem in the UK, as we all know, right? Um, I mean, a patient gets referred for hematuria, they get diagnosed with potential 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 bladder cancer, by the time they get the TRBT, that's what the quality clock is on. But from the time of the TRBT to when they get to actual definitive treatment, whether it's radiotherapy or whether it's surgery, that can sometimes drag on for six to 12 months. So what he wanted to show was that if you skip this big hurdle of TRBT, can you get the patient faster to definitive therapy? And there he's one. I mean, there's no question about it. If you skip the TRBT, you get to definitive therapy. But the issue is, is is faster or better, right? Are we actually improving the outcomes of these patients? And if you look at that, we don't know yet. So this trial does not tell us whether you can actually predict the bladder pathology, even though it's called bladder path. It doesn't tell us whether the outcomes of the patients are equivalent. Yes, they get there quicker, but do they do better? We don't know that. Um, and I really think that, you know, MRI is here to stay. Um, and especially if you have standardized MRI protocols at your center using the VRADs, 
it's much more reliable than CT scan, which, as we know, is worse than flipping a coin because you're half, you're wrong more than half the time when you're trying to say T2 or T3 with a CT scan, right? So MRI is here to stay. Bladder pads great in in situations where you don't have access to healthcare in a rapid uh, fashion. But I suspect you, Declan and, and Renu, where you are, you see your patients, get them to TRBT and cystectomy in a timely fashion. And as urologists, we've published numerous times that getting patients to definitive therapy between eight and 12 weeks is that time point beyond which you can affect outcomes. So in a system where you can't do that eight to 12 weeks from diagnosis to cystectomy or radiotherapy, yes, skipping TRBT makes sense, but otherwise you're giving up the variables such as small cell carcinoma, right? How do you know it's not so small cell, which is clearly a systemic disease? How do you know if they have LELC? How do you know if they have barren histologies? You don't know a lot of things if you skip the TRBT completely and you're sacrificing maybe a small percentage of patients, but I don't want to sacrifice any patients, right? So I, I, I think we need to look and see what the data shows when it comes to outcomes, but clearly he's shown that you can get there quicker. Yeah, I mean, that, that is significant, isn't it? For those who are not familiar with it, the use of this MRI-directed pathway led to a, a, a time to correct treatment of 53 days compared to 98 days for the traditional method. Yeah, so the, the message is on a trial, you'll, if you skip a TURBT uh, and just do an MR, you'll get onto the treatment quicker, um, which kind of, that makes sense. Um, and I suppose it's important that in the, pa- the standard pathway, they still got there in 8 to 12 weeks anyway. Um, but that's in a trial. So th- th- I think maybe the point is that in community settings, maybe not everyone gets there in eight or 12 weeks. But I think, you know, as Ashish has said and others have said on Twitter, yeah, but is it leading to a better outcome? Just because you get to the pathway, you know, a few weeks earlier, uh, all, those, all the extra nuance you get with a bladder tumour. But what about um, you, Niha? What do you think about uh, treating a patient without uh, histological proof of muscle invasion? Is that something that you would embrace um, uh, <laughs> yeah. just based on getting there a bit quicker? Well, well, first thing I'll say is, again, you know, kudos to, to Nick James and his whole team. You know, I think uh, when you think about disruptors, right, disruptors in, in science and in technology that sort of get us thinking to, in a different way and thinking about the next thing, he's certainly um, a, a master of that. And I think what is, uh, what is appealing about this is this idea that how do we incorporate imaging? I think that, um, you know, since the, the tweets first started, I think Nick has acknowledged, you know, yes, there are patients in whom absolutely the, the TRBT makes sense. And particularly when you have extensive CIS, the variant histology issue, all of that. But I, I wonder if, again, as our imaging improves, as other markers, uh, potentially uh, urine cytology and other markers may improve, how would we incorporate that so it isn't a one-size-fits-all that every patient would necessarily need to go through the TRBT. And I think, Ashish, to your point, I mean, obviously you're very thoughtful about the patients in whom you do uh, a more extreme TRBT down to the fat versus uh, more of a debulking. But, you know, I think what often happens, at least for a lot of the patients we see who might be referred uh, from centers that, that don't get a high volume of this is you get a variable quality of TRBT, you get significant, um, you know, potential post-procedural infections and toxicities that that really set the patient back. So while it is true that uh, I think there are environments in which patients generally don't have these delays, even in um, in areas where there shouldn't be a delay, there might be because of some unexpected morbidity. Again, it's not to say that that um, obviates the need for the TRBT, but I think it would be, for many of us, um, pretty exciting if, if there could be a pathway, again, for selected patients where you knew that you could safely forego 
uh, a more extensive TRBT if you felt that the, the Likert score, for example, uh, um, validated on the, on the flexible cystoscopy and, and then perhaps with long-term follow-up and we see the outcomes of how these patients do, if we find that they fare well, and that is the big question, how, how will they fare? We, we have yet to see. But if they do, I, I can envision uh, a paradigm in which this gets incorporated. Again, I don't see it replacing TRBT. Um, I think there'll be a lot of steps before that could ever happen. But I, but I love the idea of, again, the disruption um, and just sort of thinking in a novel way. And I think we're all pretty open to that. I, and and I, if I, I could just say. if I could yeah. just follow up on what Nea said, I, I totally agree with you about the quality of TRBT and, and a plea to Renu and Declan and GeoCast. You know, you should have a dedicated session on TRBT because that is Technique, the most yeah. neglected technical procedure that we need. I mean, it's the most important thing that we do for patients with bladder cancer, but everybody focuses on, for example, robotic cystectomy, right? Which is the least important for patients with bladder cancer. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, I'd rather see this replace a poorly performed TRBT than have patients undergo poorly performed TRBTs because you get complications, you can get perforations, yeah. seeding, all of that. So if we can get rid of TRBTs that are not done well, absolutely. I'm, I'm all for this. Um, but a well-performed TRBT, I think is still a very critical part of the management paradigm of our patients. Um, so I think there's a role for both. And maybe we could, you know, uh, flip this around and say, well, if you're not a good resectionist, put your patient on bladder path. And if you do it well, resect the tumor. Absolutely. I mean, you I can, you can, see, you can definitely good. see those implications for something something like this, disruptive technology like this, Neha, because, um, you know, like you said, Declan, so, you know, a community setting, uh, maybe yeah. this will prompt earlier referral to a tertiary setting, you know, uh, based on an MRI-directed pathway. But And the, the point about TRBT is so right because it often then gets left to a more junior uh, urologist in, in yeah. a resident doing this or doing the repeat one, et cetera, et cetera. And it is the most important thing to get right. Yeah. And, yeah, good idea. Good idea. Fantastic. We'll park it away. We'll get maybe someone like Tim O'Brien who has a big interest in TRBT technique to come on as well. And there are a lot of improvements in technique with on-block resections and using uh, image-assisted, uh, BCGR, uh, HexVix-assisted, et cetera, et cetera. But look, that's great. We are, I think, pretty much out of time, aren't we? Yeah, there we go. Bladder cancer being disruptive. Yeah, it's great. We should do more bladder cancer, shouldn't we? Yeah. Every time we talk about bladder cancer, it's, it's very popular. We talk about too much prostate cancer on this podcast. <laughs> I know we, we do, but it's, it's well, hard she's to She's given us an idea, TURBT, that, that, that'll be on our list. Yeah, yeah but we do. You guys were so kind. Yeah, the prostate's just there. It's in the way of the bladder. I don't know why you guys focus on the prostate. Uh, <laughs> there yeah. he is at MD Anderson fighting his own <laughs> That's right. And I didn't even need my body armor. You guys were so kind. Thank no, you. So I take it back. No super diplomat. Um, and by the way, we got great feedback from last week's uh, post about radiation and renal cancer. Yeah. People love that. So, um, yeah. And we're going to do a lot more renal cancer in the next few weeks because ESMO was all about renal cancer, wasn't it? It was absolutely yeah, fantastic. What, what a great platform for renal cancer this year. Fantastic. Well, look, um, I think that's where we'll um, uh, we'll uh, uh, call a halt to it and we'll uh, wish everyone all the best. Uh, thank you for joining us so much, uh, Niha and Ashish. Uh, you're great friends of the podcast and we look forward to having you back again sometime soon. That'd be great. Thanks for having us. No problem. Thanks and so that's, much. That's it from you and me, Renee. Until next time. We'll be back again soon. And um, if you've got suggestions for content, of course, we're always interested in hearing what you want to listen to on GUcast. So just uh, email us or send us a message on Twitter. It's very easy to find us. Thank you very much and goodbye.